0: Part three. That musket which Rab did not have bothered Johnny. However, the soldiers never carried them while loiter- loitering about the alehouses and dwarves or the stables of the Afrique queen. They stood guard with them, they drilled with them, they practiced marks- marksmanship very badly, Rab said. And now and then over at the foot of the common, they executed a deserter with them. But never, not once, as far as Johnny could make out, did they leave them about. Drilling, shooting, marching over, they stacked them at their barracks, and there was always at least a sergeant guarding these stacked guns. Johnny and Rab dropped their voices, even in the privacy of their attic, where they discussed these muskets. The Yankee gunsmiths were working from dawn to dusk, preparing guns, making new ones. But as long as Rab had a weapon and was, after all, a little more than a boy, he believed he had no chance for a modern gun unless he got it for himself from the British. How soon, Johnny whispered, before they march out and the war begins. God knows, Rab murmured. God and General Gage, maybe not until next spring. Armies always move in the spring. But before that, I must have a good gun in my hands. A man can't stand up to anything with a good weapon in his hands. Pardon me, a man can stand up to anything with a good weapon in his hands. Without it, he's but a dumb beast. Johnny had never seen Reb so blocked by anything. Apparently he went through every situation without friction, like a knife going through cheese. Now he was blocked and it made him restless, possibly less canny. One day he told Johnny that he had a contract with a farmer from Medway who was making a business of buying muskets from the British privates and selling them to the Minutemen. Rab did not like to ask his aunt for so large a sum. She had little enough to buy food, but she had said, weapons before food. One morning, Johnny knew Rab was meeting the farmer at the market. He knew that the soldier returning from guard duty was going, absent mindedly, to leave his musket on a pile of straw. It had all been worked out. But when he heard yells and shouts from the marketplace and the rattle of the British drums calling up the reserves, he tore over to Docks Square. He had a feeling that the turmoil was over Rab's gun. He was right. A solid block of redcoats faced out, presenting their muskets at the market and peaked the market people and inhabitants. The captain was yelling to churning hundreds. Get back, stand back, good people of Boston. This is our own private affair. What happened? Johnny asked an old hen wife. They've caught one of their own men selling a musket to a farmer. Happens he comes from Medway. So tis said. So tis said. There we go. Happens they caught more than the farmer and the soldier. They caught three in all. They are taking them over to the province house for General Gage. Gage is in Salem. For some colonel then. No mob gathered to rescue the two Yankees. All by now felt a certain confidence in the British way of doing things. A general or even a colonel had the right to punish a soldier caught selling his arms and also anyone who tempted him. Johnny tagged the marching soldiers, but it was not until they turned into the province house that he saw the three prisoners. The British soldier was grinning, and Johnny guessed that he had been put up to this game merely to snare the yokels. The farmer was in his market smock. He had long, straight gray hair and thin, mean mouth. You could tell by looking at him that he had gone into his little business for the love of money not for the love of freedom. Rab had been shaken out of his usual nice balance between quick action and caution by his passionate desire for a good gun. Otherwise, he would not have mixed himself up with such a man. Rab himself was looking a little sullen. He was not used to defeat. What would they do to him? They might imprison him. They might flog him. Worst of all, they might turn him over to some tough top sergeant to be taught a lesson. This informal punishment would doubtless be worst, the worst. The province house was a beautiful building. And as Johnny hung about the front of it, he had a chance to admire it for over an hour. It stood well back from the rattle and bustle of marble of marble streets with its glassy-eyed copper Indian on top of the cupola and its carved and colored lion and unicorn of Britain over the door. Behind the house, he heard orders called and soldiers were hallooing. But worst of all, they were laughing. And that was the Colonel Nesbitt's boy bringing about the Colonel's charger. There was a large group of people still standing in the street the hilarity of the British soldiers did not ease their fears as to the fate of the prisoners. Johnny could hear the rattle of the men's muskets as they came to attention, and then all together, four drummers let their sticks fall as one. Out onto Marble Street, with the drummers in black bearskin caps first, and then the Colonel Nesbitt on horseback, came almost to the entry entire 47th Regiment, surrounding a cart. In the cart sat a hideous blackbird, big as a man, shaped like a man, with a head hung forward like a molting crow. It was a naked man, painted with tar and rolled in feathers. Three times already the Whigs had tarred and feathered enemies and carted them through the streets of Boston. Now it was the British turn. The redcoats marched. The colonel's horses pranced. The cart with its shameful burden bumped over the cobbles. One glance had convinced Johnny this was not Rab. The hideous blackbird had a paunch. Rab had none. Before the townhouse, Colonel Nesbitt ordered a halt, and an orderly came forward and read a proclamation. It merely explained that what was being done and why, and threatened like treatment to the next buyer of stolen weapons. Then, Colonel Nesbitt was evidently a newspaper reader. The regiment went to Marshall Lane and stopped before the office of the spy. The threat was made that the editor of the paper would soon be treated like the bird in the cart. Then they were headed for, for Eads and Gill's office. Johnny guessed the Observer would come next after the Boston Gazette and ran to Salt Lane to warn Uncle Lorne. He jumped into the shop, slamming the door after him, looking wildly about for the printer. Rab in his printer's apron was standing at his bench, quietly setting type. Rab, how'd you do it? How'd you get away? Rab's eyes glittered. In spite of his great air of calm, he was angry. Colonel Nesbitt said, I was just a child. Go buy a pop gun boy. He said, they flung me out the back door, told me to go home. Then Johnny laughed. He couldn't help it. Rab had always, as far as Johnny knew, been treated as a grown man and always looked upon himself as such. So all he did was hurt your feelings. (laughs) Rab grinned suddenly, but a little thinly. Johnny told of the tar and feathering of the farmer and also that he expected in a short time the 47th Regiment would come marching down Salt Lane and stop before the door to read that proclamation about tar and feathering seditious newspaper publishers. And here they come, those dressed up red monkeys, but they don't dare do anything but stop, read a proclamation and move on. When this was over and the troops moved down the lane to Union, Johnny and Rab stood in the street and watched them. Luckily, said Rab, I didn't give my money in advance. I'll return it to Aunt Jennifer. But he, stood, he still stood in the street watching the stiff rhythm of the marching troops, the glitter of their guns and bayonets, the dazzle of the white and scarlet disappearing at the bottom of the lane. They'll make good targets, all right, he said absentmindedly. Out in Lexington, they're telling us: pick off the officers first, then the sergeants. These those white crosses on their chests are easy to sight on. His words frightened Johnny a little. Lieutenant 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 Stranger, Sergeant Gale, Major Pitcairn. Johnny could not think of them as targets. Rab could. Part four. Back of the lighthouse were apple trees, now heavy with fruit. Johnny and Scylla sat together on a bench. He had missed her that month she had been out in Milton. It was still summer, but everywhere you could smell and feel the coming of fall. It had been an interesting conversation. Madge had run off and married Sergeant Gale, and Ma had been so put to it to keep Mr. Tweedy in the family she had married him herself. She said she was he she said he was too old for me and that, and she knows he's too young for her but he's a clever smith and he's going to hang on to him come hell or high water. Sylla bent her face over the work in her lap. She was rolling a tiny hem on a tiny handkerchief on a tiny handkerchief one of Miss Lavinia's. So she's Miss Tweedy now? Yes, Maria Tweedy. That's not so bad you know you have to marry someone whose last name goes with your first. For instance, if my name was Rue, I couldn't marry a man named Barb. Or if my name happened to be Tobacco, I couldn't marry a man, man named, sorry, eighth graders, okay. I couldn't marry a man called Pouch or Pipe or nobody was ever named Tobacco. You don't know. If a southern merchant made a lot of money on tobacco, I think he might name his daughter Tobacco. We make money on codfish around here, and I've never heard of anyone calling his girl Codfish. You're just being silly. But I like to be silly. I like to plan things out. For instance, I could marry a man called... Anybody called Priscilla can marry anybody. No, they can't. For instance, I couldn't marry Rab... Johnny froze. From being mildly irritated but interested, he was a little angry. Nobody asked you to, he said shortly. I know, but a girl has to think about things like that. Almost anything can happen to a girl, suddenly. And she has to think ahead so she'll know which way to jump. Rab wouldn't marry you. He's too, he's too wonderful. Scylla gave him one of her sweet veiled glances out of the corner of her eye. That's what you mean? It was exactly what Johnny had meant. Of course not, but he's not like any other boy I ever knew. Scylla did not look at the work in her idle fingers. She stared off down Beacon Hill. From where they sat, they could see the ocean. I know that, but when you get, but when you really get to know him, he doesn't, seem so wonderful. I mean, he's just as wonderful, but a whole lot nicer. Johnny didn't want to ask the next question, but he could not help it. Have you, how, did you get to know him so well? She looked surprised. Why, he comes here and takes me walking and buys me sweets. And once he took me to the old South to hear Dr. Warren. Rab had never said anything about this to Johnny. It was well enough to say that Rab was secretive by nature and couldn't help the way God had made him. But Johnny felt piqued. Scylla noticed the shadow on his face. Priscilla Silsby is poor, but Scylla Silsby is worse. Johnny's lower lips stuck out. Seemingly without any action of the wind, his fair hair was rumpled all over his head. But Priscilla Tremaine is a fine name, she went on. I've thought about that ever since you came to the shop and mother told me I had to marry you. I was 11 then. Then they had both been 11. She is a skinny little thing with a gentle face and disturbing tongue. Her clothes had always been too big for her because they were handed down from the Dorcas. She had to pin her skirts tight about her waist to keep them on pretty and shabby and sweet and sour. Johnny had liked her right off. He had not thought much about what she looked like now, but he looked at her as she bent her face to her work. The little pointed chin settled into the fresh white ruffles about her throat. Somehow her hair was curly around the edges and straight everywhere else. She had a shallow little nose on either side of the bridge, lay those long lashes which could mock him as well as her tongue. And so pretty, he could not believe it. He was accustomed to staring at Lavinia Light's famous beauty and to feel a pleasant tingle up and down his spine. Now it was Scylla Lapham, just good old Scylla, that was giving him these spinal creeps. When he was 11, he had said he would marry her if he had to. And when he was 14, he had said he wouldn't take her on a gold platter. He was 15 now, and soon he would be a grown-up man going courting like rab. Sillo was packing up her sewing. Miss Lavinio will be wanting her tea, and I must get Izana dressed, brushed, powdered, and perfumed to sit with her. One of the soldiers at the 4th Regiment, who were encamped upon the common, was earning a little money, helping at the light stable. As Scylla moved away from Johnny, the groom leapt forward to open the kitchen door for her. Why, that mannered monkey bowing and flunking about just because of Scylla Lapham. That red-headed parrot couldn't even talk English right, but he had known what Johnny had not. Scylla was a grown-up young lady, and she was pretty. Scylla... Johnny yelled at her, come back a moment, please. She left the groom bowing and smirking. Yes, she said, standing before Johnny under the apple trees. Look here, what's that fellow's name? Pumpkin. That's not a name. Yes, it is. It's his. Nobody ever, no girl could ever be a Miss Pumpkin. Nobody ever. There was so long a pause, Johnny's next word sounded awkward. You were right about one thing. Priscilla Tremaine, that's a fine name. He had meant to make a joke, but as the words left his mouth, it was not. They both stood embarrassed, looking at their feet. Scylla did not answer, but she reached up through the foliage of the tree and picked a little green apple. She gave it to him. I didn't know even winter apples were still so green, she said, and walked off towards the house without a glance for the admiring pumpkin. Johnny put the apple in his pocket, he would keep it forever. It meant that Scylla really thought that Tremaine was a fine name. No, you can't keep even little green apples forever. It would wisen up or grow ripe, or it might rot. Human relations never seem to stand completely still. This apple, for instance, it might ripen into something better than it now was, or, unromantically, it might rot away in his pocket. He put it on the windowsill and a little superstitiously waited to see what it would do. But Rab ate the apple. Johnny, already jealous for the first time in his life over Rab's taking Scylla out, buying her sweets and never saying anything, tried his best to quarrel with a puzzled Rab over the apple. It ended as Johnny might have guessed it would. Rab refused to be impressed with the crime. All he had done was to eat a wormy, no-good apple. He'd give Johnny a peck of better ones just so you'll stop glaring at me. Was it really wormy, Rab? It was. He had been a fool to think of the apples as a symbol of himself and Scylla.